Pastor John this morning will be preaching from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He had passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. This is the Acropolis of the Bible, Lord, and I am inadequate to climate and Declare it as it ought to be climbed and declared. But you are adequate. And it's your word and and your son, your propitiation, your wrath, your righteousness, your glory, your justification, and the faith that you are pleased to give. So I have hope, Lord, that in this hour you will act on behalf of your name, for the sake of those in this room, for the sake of the gospel, would you come and help me to say what's here? And would you come to all of us and give us hearts to receive, minds to understand? Would you subdue every rebellion? in our minds and hearts to your truth and grant that there would be a compliant spirit that the mind of the flesh would be overcome by the mind of the spirit we would not be among the number called the natural men who cannot receive the things of the spirit but that you would work in us a spiritual receptivity so that we are changed even converted by this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I took my three year old Talitha in each night, and usually she says, Sing me a song. And the one that we sing most often is by William Cooper, and she's learning it now. She can she can finish most of the lines. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be 
the flower, deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a smiling providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Now, William Cooper wrote that at a time of great struggle in his life. And there's something Talitha doesn't know about this man, namely that when he was uh, 28 in 1759, he had a total mental breakdown. And he tried three times in three different ways to kill himself. And he became absolutely persuaded that he was damned and there was no hope for him. And uh, three years later, four years later, in 1763, he was committed to St. Albans Insane Asylum in England. And by God's wonderful providence... Nathaniel Cotton was there, 58 years old, an evangelical believer, and he ministered to these people, and he ministered to William Cooper. He tried to encourage him with the scriptures again and again, and Cooper would come back, there's no hope for me, I'm not among the elect, I'm only damned, and there's no way out. And he was simply locked inside a horrible darkness. One day, six months after his stay there, he came upon a Bible on a bench in the garden, which was not an accident. And he opened it to John 11 and began to read about Jesus' interaction with Lazarus and the family there. And he wrote in his diary later, So much benevolence, mercy, goodness, sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I felt a ray of hope. And then he turned to Romans 3.25, which is what I'm going to focus on today. And God did for him what he has done for so many throughout the history of the world from this book, Romans. Let me read you what happened. He wrote this later. Immediately upon the reading, I received the strength to believe it. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification, in a moment I believed and received the gospel. And in June 1765, Cooper left St. Albans, never to return, and for 35 years, not without battles, not without many depressions, But with great fruitfulness, he lived and he ministered till he died in 1800. And among the fruit that we owe to this struggle, 
is there is a fountain filled with blood. Oh, for a closer walk with God. And the Spirit breathes upon the Word. There was a high price. And some of you are paying your price now. But I hope that you will take heart from William Cooper, who, who struggled all his life long. Not so much after he had been confronted by the God of Romans 3.25, but still struggled. And the fruit that came from his struggle was so precious for us. It was so precious. So do not think that there cannot be born from a life of great struggle wonderful fruit for the church of God, for your family, for friends, students, your dorm. This has happened over and over again with the book of Romans. The first sermon I preached over a year ago now on Romans, I began by telling some of these stories. Remember, there's Augustine sitting in another garden, hearing the word of Romans in a sing-songy way from a child across the wall from Romans 13. And God lands on Augustine. Sixteen years he'd lived with a live-in concubine. And God saved him. And turned him into one of the greatest Christians that ever was. Luther, there in the monastery, struggling to understand Romans 1 with justification by faith and the revelation of the righteousness of God that saves and doesn't damn. How can this be? I'm a sinner. Wesley, walking into that room in Aldersgate where the word of Romans came through, a commentary being read from Luther. This is a great book, and you need to understand that verses 25 and 26 are the peak of the Bible. I was listening to a tape this week on this text by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he used that phrase, this is the Acropolis of the Bible. That's where I got that phrase. If you put it together with verses 23 and 24, which we looked at last week, I don't have any doubt that this is the Mount Everest of the Bible. There are great sentences in the Bible and great paragraphs and great revelations, but it doesn't get any greater than this paragraph in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And so I want to focus with you today on what C.E.B. Cranfield in his very good commentary on this text calls the innermost meaning of the cross from verses 25 and 26. So let's read it together, these two verses. And as I read it, I'll pause and make some comments just so that you will sense the force of these things in advance of the exposition. So he's continuing on now from this verse 24 where there was the redemption that was in Christ Jesus. And so the word whom at the beginning of verse 25 is Christ, Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. Or your version might say God put forth as a propitiation or the NIV has Sacrifice of atonement. I want, I want us to embrace that word propitiation. 
and understand it. It's an important word. It means the removal of wrath. A propitiation is an act whereby at cost wrath is averted from somebody by being poured out on another. Now, before I read on, let this hit you because I think there's a lot of loose thinking about the death of Jesus. Namely that Jesus was a great man and a great teacher and owing to some strange and fortuitous circumstances and conspiracies, he happened to be mistaken as a criminal and was killed on a cross the way criminals were killed and he accepted it and therefore he models for us how to die well and how to live well. That is not what happened. Look at the word. God put forth, displayed publicly, this Christ as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. God did that. Is that clear? Jesus didn't just happen to die. God sent him to die as a propitiation in his blood. The blood meaning it's going to drain out until he dies. Like a lamb slaughtered on an altar. God did that. Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It wasn't ultimately the Romans. It wasn't ultimately the Jews. It was his father. So don't miss that here. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Now notice that. This is the purpose of Christ's death. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Now the question is, why did God need to demonstrate his righteousness? What's the problem? And he answers that in the next phrase. He did this. He demonstrated his righteousness through the execution of his own son as a wrath-averting sacrifice because in the forbearance of God, he had passed over the sins previously committed. And then he repeats himself as though he's really got to drive this home. For a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. That's what the cross is. The cross is a demonstration of God's righteousness at the present time so that now this next phrase is even bigger than the one in verse 25 because here he says not just to display his righteousness 
But he says, so that he would be righteous. God would not be righteous without the cross. Not just wouldn't look righteous. There's a lot at stake here. And the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Now let's boil this down. These two magnificent verses. Let's boil it down to the most basic problem that the death of Christ is trying to solve. What is it? It says God put Christ forward, sent him to die in order to demonstrate his righteousness or his justice. So the problem, the basic problem that God is undertaking to solve in the cross is that he appears to be, and verse 26 says, would be unrighteous if he didn't do this. So somehow the righteousness of God is in jeopardy here. The very righteousness of the creator of the universe is in crisis. There's a crisis in heaven. Heaven is about to be indicted legitimately as unrighteous and unjust. That's what's at stake. He would look unrighteous. In verse 26 says he would be unrighteous. And so the basic issue here is the vindication of the righteousness of God through the death of his son. Now what created that problem? What brought the righteousness of God into jeopardy? Why is there a crisis in heaven to the extent that God would not only appear to be what would be unjust. What brought that about? And the answer is given in two ways. One in verse 25 and one in verse 26. Let's look at both of them. In verse 25 it says, It's because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he had passed over sins previously committed. And then in verse 26, it says, so that he might be just and the one who justifies people who just believe. And those people are called ungodly in chapter 4, verse 5. He justifies the ungodly. So he passes over sins in times gone by And today he is simply counting as righteous people who are ungodly if they'll just trust Jesus. That's a huge crisis of righteousness. Let's look at this first one. This passing over of sins done beforehand. What does he mean? What's he talking about there? What did he do? I think he means... Kenny already prayed it in his prayer. He referred in his prayer, you may remember, to Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us 
according to our sins, nor requite us according to our iniquities. Now that was prayed hundreds of years before Jesus came. He does not, God does not deal with us according to our sins or requite us according to our iniquities. He passes over them. Now, why is that a problem? Well, let's take David as an example. This is really concrete, comes home. King David happens to be walking around on his roof when he ought to be out to war. And he sees a naked, beautiful woman bathing. And he wants her. And he gets her because he's the king. And he gets her pregnant. Now he's in trouble because her husband's at war where David ought to be. And so it's going to be clear that somebody beside her husband got her pregnant. And this baby's going to look like David. And she's probably going to tell the truth. So he gets Uriah, to make the story short, killed. Kills him, her husband. Now God comes to the prophet Nathan and says, you go to my servant David and say a thing to him. And he came and he said, 2 Samuel 12, 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Well, David feels the sting of this word. And in verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. To which Nathan, the prophet, says, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that. Okay. You're the father of Bathsheba. You're her father. The king has forcibly, sexually abused, raped your daughter. And then he killed your son-in-law. And this great God of heaven says, we'll let that go. No, thank you. This is a crisis. This is a crisis in heaven. The judge of the universe is imperiled at this moment. The justice of God is at stake in this moment. You can't do that. No judge on the bench in Hennepin County can do that and stay a judge. He is off the bench of the universe if that's the way he's going to deal with with sin. Now, there aren't many people in the world who worry about these things. The secular mindset about God is so inverted and convoluted and twisted 
that hardly anybody in this city today is distressed about the injustice of the leniency of God toward them. Hardly anybody is wringing their hands this morning that the sun came up on this wicked city, which is a tremendous injustice. It is an absolutely unthinkable way to treat godless people who deserve to be damned, who deserve to have fire and brimstone poured out upon this city every day, every hour, for eternity, because of the way we have despised the glory of God in this city. Nobody is worried about that this morning. Therefore, hardly anybody can understand the gospel or the cross. Because what's driving Paul's heart here is there is a massive problem in heaven here. God's righteousness is imperiled by the showing of mercy, the passing over of sins done beforehand. And I can tell by the look on some of your faces that you don't think this is right at all. You don't get it. You are so man-centered, you just don't get it. God begins with God and His glory. He creates a universe to display that glory for the everlasting enjoyment of His creatures. Verse 23 that we looked at last week says, All of his creatures have sinned and fallen short of that glory. Have you ever wondered why glory and sin are brought together? It's because the essence of the world and the universe is glory. It's God's glory that everything is about in the universe. He made the world to display His glory. He made you to know and see and taste and live on and love and be satisfied by Him and His glory. And everybody in this room has traded Him away for a bowl of cereal. We don't love the glory of God. Anything like it is worth being loved. And the essence of sin is that we choose one thing after the other, rooted in our preferences for other values rather than the glory of God. And therefore we trample the glory of God under our feet every day. And we despise it. Nathan said to David, why have you despised God? And I can imagine David saying, despise God? I didn't despise God. I wasn't even thinking about God. I was hot for this woman. I was scared to death. I killed her husband. God wasn't even on the scene. To which Nathan would, I think, respond, The God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, 
The one who chose you from being a shepherd boy and made you king. The one who designed marriage to last forever. The one who said thou shalt not commit adultery wasn't even on the scene. That's right, David. That's what I mean when I say you despise him. And that's what I mean right now when I say in this room we despise him. We just choose other things besides God. You don't, you don't have to be on a trip of hatred to God in order to despise God. All you have to do is neglect God. Just neglect Him. Like 90% of the people are doing in this city right now this morning. God begins with God. And therefore, when He exalts His glory... And everyone despises his glory. And he passes over that. A crisis is created in the universe. Why? Because it looks like God is joining the opinion of the sinners concerning his glory. If David despises the glory of God in committing adultery with Bathsheba, despises the glory of God in killing her husband, or you despise the glory of God by going on your merry way, by giving God about 2% of your energy and time and love and zeal and passion and interest and joy, and God passes over that and gives you a lifetime, God is despising his glory with you. And that's evil. That's unrighteous. And that's the crisis that Paul is dealing with in this text. There is a way that God could vindicate his glory. He could send us all to hell where we would suffer and be tormented forever and ever because of the way we have belittled his honor and despised his worth and neglected his glory. He could do that. He could send every one of us to hell, and the effect of that would be a restoration of the glory of God to what it really is. He could do that. But that's not the way God is. We heard it read in, in the text that uh, Chuck read for us this morning. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. The most famous verse in the Bible may be John 3.16. And the one that follows it is just as beautiful. He did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. God wants to save. God wills salvation, not hell. It's not his first delight. So here's the problem. Everybody is a glory despiser. Everybody has exchanged the glory of God for images. Everybody has belittled his worth, trampled on his name, handed off his glory, chosen all kinds of other innocent and ugly things, and become idolaters, all of us. 
And God, in order to be righteous, must show that His glory is infinitely more valuable than that. And therefore, He must punish and pour out His wrath upon that kind of belittling of His glory. If He's going to be God and righteous. Or, maybe, in eternity, God could design a way that the wrath that is righteously appointed for sinners could somehow be averted, propitiated. Now, how could that happen? What might he do? so that everybody isn't simply sent to hell to vindicate the glory of God and its worth. What could that be? And his answer is, there is one who loves my glory with an infinite intensity and a perfection that if he were willing to suffer my wrath for the sake of my glory, my glory would be seen in the universe to be what it really is, and all those whose sin he would cover could be saved, and I could still be righteous. And the Son and the Father negotiated that transaction in a covenant of redemption before the world ever was, it says in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. I want to give you a glimpse into that from the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus died. Let me read this to you so that you can see the dynamic of the relation between the Son and the Father. You see what's at stake here? The Father is saying to the Son, Son, I am a righteous God. I am a holy God. I am a vengeful God. I am a wrathful God. I hate sin. And there is wrath that's going to be poured out on all sin someday. And I will vindicate my righteousness. And I will show the world that my glory may not be despised. But son, you know me. You are me. I want to save. I want to save sinners. So, would you, together with me, find a way to absorb my wrath by loving the glory of God so much that you repair that glory and all the injury done to it by all those who have sinned against me and trust in you? Would you do that? Here's what happened. In John 12, 27, Jesus is wrestling. Oh, how he is wrestling. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So you see how he's wrestling. Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I should say? Deliver me. Don't let me go through with this. And then he, and then he adds, is answering his own question. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. What purpose? What purpose, Jesus? For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. 
You see what the purpose was? For this purpose I have come to this hour, Father. Now do it. Glorify thy name. Vindicate your infinite value as I die in order to repair all the injury that's ever been done to your glory by your people's trampling it under their sinful ways. And you know what the Father said? A voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Which I think means, I love your life. And I will love your death. And I will be repaired. So that everyone who is in you will no longer experience wrath from me. Because you have shown that my glory is not being despised when I pass over their sins. My glory is not being belittled when I justify the ungodly. You have shown by receiving all my wrath in order to die for the glory of my name, that my glory is of infinite worth in the world, so that I can now, as a righteous, holy, just God, save sinners. Is there any doubt why, under the Ministry of the Holy Spirit, William Cooper, feeling damned and hopeless that nothing could reach him, would lay his eyes on verse 25 and 26 of this text and feel like it was enough. Now here's the closing question for us. Are you included? Is your sin covered? Is the wrath of God that is appointed for you no longer appointed for you? You have a choice. You can either go to hell where you will suffer the wrath of God forever and thus vindicate the righteousness of God for your sin. Or you can go to Jesus, where the righteousness of God for your sin has already been vindicated, and you don't have to bear it. Those are your choices this morning. Now, what does go to Jesus mean? Because I just believe that everybody in the hearing of my voice here would want to do that. I can't imagine anybody wanting to have the wrath of God upon them. Everybody in this room knows you're a sinner. Come on. I don't need any big proofs here. Your conscience is testifying that you're a sinner. Your conscience right now is testifying that God is real. You don't have to be playing academic games. Oh, maybe there's not a God and all this is just a myth. Baloney. You know when you got up this morning, 
You know there's a God. And when you go to bed tonight, you will know there's a God. Your conscience testifies. Nature testifies. The world testifies. There's a God. You're a sinner. And you are out of sync with this God. You are in big time trouble. And this gospel is self-authenticating for your soul if you will open your eyes and awake by the power of the Holy Spirit to see it as beautiful as it really is. So what's happening right now is that I am portraying for you something that's happened outside of you. I'm not talking about anything that's happened inside you yet this morning. You realize that? I haven't said one word about your soul and how you get right with God. I'm simply telling you something that God has done outside of you at a point in history in negotiating between the Father and the Son on a cross where wrath is poured out, propitiation happens, wrath is removed from God's people. And now the question is, are you included? And to answer that question, We'll just read backwards in the text and notice the three places where he tells you how to be included. And my prayer now as I close in this way is that as we look at these, the Holy Spirit will open your heart to see the beauty of this gospel. And seeing the beauty of it, find yourself drawn to rest in it. Verse 26 at the end. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There it is the first time. Faith in Jesus. Remember last week? You can't pay. You can't work for it. It is a gift, verse 24. It is by grace, verse 24. It is by ransom outside you, verse 24. And now we've seen it's by propitiation and the removal of wrath and the vindicated vindication of God's righteousness. It's by faith. Now verse 25. Let's see it again. Let it hit you each time how precious it is. Let it be personal for you. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. So it all comes home to you, for you personally, through faith. One last verse, 22. Verse 22. Even... The righteousness of God. This is what's being displayed for you. A justifying righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Don't you love the word all there? Please don't be a William Cooper on the front side of St. Albans this morning. Please don't say, well, yes, there's an all, but I'm not in the all. Don't say that. Because it's all who Believe. Justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a wrath removing propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate God's righteousness so that right now in this room he can do two things that 
it seems like could have never happened. He can be just and he can pass over your sins. He can be righteous and he can justify the ungodly because Christ bore your wrath, put it away, and by faith you can be in him. Well, let's bow our heads and and confess our faith together. Oh, Holy Spirit, come and seal this to the hearts of your people and open the hearts of those who came in here unregenerate, unsaved, unconverted, unbelieving. Open their hearts and do for them what you did for William Cooper. Give them the strength to believe. Oh, may the God of... Hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing these precious and very great promises rooted in such a wonderful propitiation. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.